You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. It's refreshing, really, um, besides the fact that you're also far away, um, really to have the, it's, it's refreshing to have the opportunity to, to gather with like-minded believers and worship our God in unity without being chastised or, or stared at like we're morons, right? Um, it's, it, it's safe inside these walls. It's safe together uh, to worship God. And uh, I say that because sometimes it's not like that outside the, these doors, is it? Uh, I, I remember when I first started working at the, the gate, I, was, I got hired on as associate pastor. This was nine and a half years ago now. Um, and, and I used to walk, you know, I still do. I, I'd find myself in a coffee shop because I'm prone to do that. And, and the barista, I'd order my coffee, and then the barista would, would, would ask me, you know, while she's making the coffee or while he's making the coffee, so, so what are you up to after this? And I'd respond, oh, I'm just heading back to work. And then they'd go, oh, well, where do you work? You know how the conversations go. Oh, where do you work? And then I would, I would say, oh, I'm a pastor at the gate. And they'd be like, oh, neat, and, and, and keep chatting with me like it was all good and ask me questions about it and stuff, and that was all good. Um, but things have, have changed since then. Um, nowadays, I found that the reaction to what I do for work is much different. Instead of, a, oh, neat, you know, that's cool, um, and more friendly banter, more often than not, I get an oh followed by an abrupt end to the conversation. Uh, and it's, it's kind of weird. And, and, and I mean, that could just be my own impression. I could just be making that up, but, um, or just feeling that. But more likely, uh, their negative or ambivalent reaction toward me as a pastor is because the culture we live in doesn't look at Christians the same way that they may have done in the past. To some, we're the odd ones out now. And for others, we're even perceived as hateful and extreme for various reasons. And this is actually based on research, not just my experience or my opinion. According to the Barna Research Group, in, in 2015, they did a study, and they found that two out of five adults polled in America believed that it was extremist to attempt to convert others to Christianity. And 60% of those adults in America, as well as 82% of atheists and agnostics, believed evangelism was also considered extremist. Two out of five believed that quitting your job to do missions work was considered extremist. Over half of them believed that having traditional or differing views on sexuality or sexual ethics was extreme. A quarter of them felt that waiting for marriage to have sex was extremist. Approximately 30% of those adults and 34% of atheists and agnostics believed that having dietary restrictions for religious reasons was considered extremist. And finally, to put it all in in perspective, 45% of atheists and agnostics and religiously unaffiliated that were polled agreed with the statement, Christianity is extremist. And all these numbers have been trending upward since 2015. In other words, we don't have to try very hard to look (laughs) like we're extremists. Just for being Christian, just for, you know, minding our own business and living for Jesus, for loving our neighbor, um, especially when we proclaim his gospel in the the world through word or deed, and uh, when we refuse to live like the world does, we're seen and perceived as extremist and offensive. Um, But the Bible tells us that this will happen to us. In 1 Peter 4, 
1 to 4. And I'm, I'm like 90% convinced that 1 Peter 4 is like a, like a study in Daniel 3. Because like I'm going to keep drawing to it through the whole sermon. Uh, but anyways, 1 Peter 4, 1 to 4 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. In the Greek, that word malign means something to the effect of speaking evil of someone or to slander someone. So, so the Apostle Peter is saying here, uh, just, by, just by refusing to, to agree with or take part in the ungodly actions of our culture, we'll be seen as a bunch of evil jerks. That's what we'll be perceived as. And, and the passage goes on. If, if we read further, the passage actually goes on to, to encourage Christians to just keep on serving anyways, to just keep on loving unconditionally and forgiving those who have sinned against them and, and to honor everyone and to keep being sober-minded and self-controlled and to keep living as stewards of God's kingdom and so on, despite the hateful backlash that inevitably comes their way. And before Christmas, we, we talked about this. You might remember we talked about the importance of honoring this place we live in by being able to accommodate through seeking the prosperity of the city and by loving our neighbors, all without being assimilated or sucked into the culture ourselves, of course. Um, Ultimately, that as strangers and exiles in this world, we're called to live peacefully, lawfully, and generously alongside a society with whom we disagree. And this attitude of, of seeking the good of everyone is important for our Christian witness. And yes, there have been many so-called Christians that, that have definitely uh, failed at this um, and, and have kind of been really nasty or hateful or, or condemning or have started wars or whatever, right? And so um, that's not cool. That's not, and, and that's probably part of why we get a bad rap as Christians sometimes because of the actions of other so-called Christians that aren't very Christ-like. Um, but that's certainly not the goal. Right? That's certainly not the mandate given to us by Jesus to, to love God, to love our neighbors, and make disciples of all nations. Um, but regardless, we also need to realize that, that as we follow after Jesus, instead of our culture, if we follow after Jesus, instead of following after the ways of the world, we're going to stick out. We're going to stick out. In the same vein, the more openly secularized and morally self-righteous our society becomes, then we'll actually start to stick out even more. Um, 30, 40 years ago, people that were, um, you know, would, would live according to the world, they would still look at, at Christianity like, oh, those are the moral ones. And, and I'm just a rebel, right? That's kind of how they would look at Christianity. That's not how it is anymore in our culture. The world thinks that they're the moral ones, and they look at us like the immoral ones. That, that it's, it, it's become a total shift. And so we're, we're dealing with a different type of culture than, than Christians dealt with 30, 40 years ago. Um, 
And if you've ever been on a, a school playground, you'll know that humans tend to become uncomfortable and even hostile to other humans that stick out or, or who have differing opinions than what's socially acceptable. David Kinnaman and uh, Gabe Lyons write, following Jesus radically redefines the ideas by which good faith Christians live. Our relationship with our Creator is reflected in our words and actions. Our faith demands that we adopt a way of life that honors our King. In some cases, we have to get weird. And this isn't easy. Who wants to be the odd man out, right? Demonstrating allegiance to King Jesus creates uneasy moments, and we need not seek them out. Merely by faithfully following Christ, we will stand in opposition to a culture that demands our fidelity. So this is, this is the, can you hear me? This, this is the reality of, of being an exile. We're meant to live counterculturally to the world. Or rather, we're called through Jesus and the power of his spirit to follow after God. Which you'll find automatically sets us up as counterculture to a world that inherently sets itself up against God. So to put it simply, we're, we're Christian exiles sent to reveal the kingdom of God within the context of a digital Babylon that attempts to create a utopian kingdom apart from God. And this is naturally going to create some issues. As uh, Kinnaman and Lyons again write, with an accommodation viewpoint, we don't seek out conflict. But when the commitments and claims we've made diverge from those of the majority culture, we don't hesitate to stand out. Are you willing to stand out? Are you ready to stand out? No matter the cost. Because there will be a cost as we stand in opposition to our culture. In the story that uh, Tim read through this morning, we get a picture of three Judean exiles who were willing and ready to stand in humble opposition to Babylon no matter the cost. King Nebuchadnezzar, right, in his pride and his desire to, to assert his authority and dominance over all the nations, as, as if he speaks for the gods, he, so he, he erected this massive golden statue and, and commanded that everyone from every nation and status group under his domain was to gather in front of it. And then when the music played, they were to bow down to it. The problem is that to bow down to another god or idol is, is clearly forbidden in the Ten Commandments. And so these three Jewish exiles who had so far actually found a way to accommodate in Babylon and, and had even been promoted as governors and they're serving King Nebuchadnezzar, everything's going fine, they now found themselves in a position that they just couldn't compromise. So to honor God, they didn't bow. And then some Babylonians tattled on them. They got told on. And, and this is telling for us, too. What I mean is if they had to be tattled on, this, this, this tells us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they must not have made a big scene or anything like that. Like, like the pictures of the movies that we watch about this always show us. Like they're standing in the front of the crowd refusing to, to, to bow. Like they're, they're on strike or, or they want all the crowd to see them in their, their glorious rebellion. It wasn't like that. It's, and it's safe to assume they didn't try to stop anyone else from bowing down either. In other words, they... 
it, didn't, it doesn't seem like they were trying to cause a crisis. It doesn't seem like they were trying to create a scene by drawing attention to themselves. They just simply didn't bow. And in, the, in that moment, they each made a choice based on their personal faith and convictions, a choice between worshiping God or worshiping men and their idols. And they chose God. But because of this, because of their faithful obedience, they found themselves standing in direct contrast to the culture, laws, religions, and social pressures of Babylon, which triggered King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Something fierce. When he heard about it, he raged. He was furious. If he had, if he had, had Twitter, he'd be tweeting about how awful and unpatriotic these guys were. He was not happy. And of course, According to his laws, right, these men would now have to be punished. They'd now have to be thrown into the fiery furnace for their defiance and refusal to bow down to this golden image, or rather their refusal to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar, because that's really what this is all about. Anyways, he was so angry that he, that he ordered the fire to be stoked seven times hotter than normal just to make sure. Just to make sure. And then he said, keep their clothing on as well. Make sure they have all their clothes on. This is probably so that, you know, they would be consumed by the flames quicker. That's my guess anyways. We don't really know why they kept them in the clothes. But either way, he wanted them burned for certain because of their blasphemy. He wanted to ensure that no God or anything could prevent them from becoming ash. He even says, what God can save you from this? And so they get bound and they get thrown into the fire. And even though a couple of the guards that were, that were throwing them into the fire, they get burned up just by being near the blazing furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are actually kept safe and alive. Somehow they don't get burned. And they, even smell like, and they don't even smell like smoke when they come out. And this is due to a fourth person who, who was with them, this messenger from God who King Nebuchadnezzar sees and then proclaims, there's someone else with them who looks like the son of the gods. And so then he calls them out of the furnace and in in amazement acknowledges that their God must be great if he's able to rescue them from such a scolding fire. And this is evidence of how God can can use our obedience and faithfulness in crisis, right? For, for, For his own purpose. And even in the midst of suffering and trial, God can use that. God can be glorified through that. And then King Nebuchadnezzar not only elevates these men to, to loftier positions in Babylon, he also decrees that, that anyone who says anything bad about their God now will be torn to pieces. It's, all, it's always about violence to King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And, and also, it's about his pride and, and controlling the gods which we're going to talk about more next week. Um, but anyways, it's quite, quite a remarkable story, right? It's pretty miraculous. Uh, and so before we go, go any further, though, I want to point out that there, there is often some debate about whether this story actually took place or, or if this is just an allegory or fantastical tale to encourage others in exile or if it was an exaggerated tale or something like that. And, and to be honest, we'll never know, truly know this side of heaven. But... What we do know, based on archaeological research, is that at the time, throwing people into a fiery furnace for blasphemy was actually something that was done. That's what 
That's what they did. They threw people into fiery furnaces. And we know this because archaeologists archaeologists have found evidence for this in historic places, like the ruins of the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, but also recently in the ruins of Babylon itself. In fact, in supposedly on a, on a furnace or kiln-type structure, they found a cuneiform inscription which reads, This is the place of burning where men who blasphemed the gods of Chaldea died by fire. So that's a pretty cool find. And now the Chaldeans, as we've been reading in, in Daniel, were only in power for a, for a brief time. King Nebuchadnezzar is a Chaldean. Um, so they were only in power for a brief time, a few decades before the Judean exile, and uh, only a few decades after. And so this inscription would most likely have been written during the time that, that the Jews were in Babylon. And um, certainly the golden image or the statue presented there was a representation of the gods of Chaldea because King Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean um, and also represented everything that Babylon represented, right? So uh, again, that's a, that's a pretty neat find that they, that they found there. And, and while that inscription may not be for the exact fiery furnace that they were thrown in, it does tell us that this story could have very well happened as this was a common form of execution. I also have a picture of what an ancient fiery furnace looks like. There it is. Just so you guys can get like an image. That's an old kiln or whatever. So they would throw them in there. Pretty nasty to think about. Um, now that you have that image of uh, what happened to people that follow God. Um, I think one of the most obvious lessons that we can learn from this story right off the bat, and it's what I've kind of been talking about already, is that as exiles, we will be persecuted or maligned, right? We will be persecuted or maligned. Most of us are probably aware, and if you're not, you probably should be, that there are currently Christians throughout the world who are being slaughtered and arrested for following Jesus, in places like Nigeria, China, India, and the Middle East. In fact, Christians are among the, the top persecuted people groups in the world right now. This is very real. And we don't know persecution like that, obviously, right? Uh, for us, it's more of, you know, un- discomfort for us, right? And, and, and embarrassing situations for us. Um, but as I talked about earlier, just living for Jesus will create tension with the world, and therefore, we should expect persecution or slander against us in, in whatever form it takes. We, sh- we should expect it. Um, and for us, it might be verbal slander or, I said, social discomfort or being made fun of or, you know, some form of hate speech against us on Twitter or something, right? Uh, but either way, First Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange or happening to you. This isn't strange. To find ourselves in a fiery furnace, literal or proverbial, right? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. This should not come as a surprise to us if we're truly following after Jesus and seeking to honor God with our lives. We should expect it. Again, we, we shouldn't seek it out or manufacture it or... or or whatever, by being jerks, right? But we should expect it if we're doing what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus himself said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
And then the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's not a question of if or why. It's a question of when. And on that note, there's a a similar picture presented to us in Revelation 13, in which the Antichrist sets up an image of himself and commands all peoples to bow down to it. And so while we might not experience, you know, that kind of end times event in our day, the point is that, that we'll always need to be ready and prepared to face these fiery trials. They're going to be happening until Jesus comes again. I don't say this to scare you all or to be depressing or negative or anything. Um, because like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can certainly find inspiration and encouragement by the way in which they stood firm in their faith, even under the penalty of death. The threat didn't stop them from following after God. In the New Testament, there's a, a similar story takes place in which uh, uh, the apostles Peter and John are standing in front of the courts of the Sanhedrin, uh, the, the, and they're the powerful religious rulers of the day. And so after... Peter and John are beaten. They're told to stop proclaiming Jesus' name in public. And then, even under the threat of more beatings and even death, this is how they respond. Peter, Acts 4.19, it says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's powerful. And then on a later date, when they're arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin a second time, and again, threatened to stop preaching Jesus, they proclaim, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. They didn't fear man or what man could do to them. Instead, they feared and trusted in God no matter what. They had witnessed Christ's love and his work of salvation from sin, and this compelled them by the power of his spirit. Nothing could stop them from proclaiming his gospel, no matter the cost. So again, are, are, we, are we ready as, as Christians to live for Jesus and proclaim his name no matter the cost? Even if the world despises us for it? Are we prepared to fight the good fight of faith? Do we choose to give our allegiance to God rather than men? The good news, however, is that we don't have to do it alone. God is with us in the furnace. As Pastor Blair mentioned to us a couple of weeks ago, God didn't take them out of the fire but was with them in it. It's it's. Hard to say if this fourth person who was with them in the fiery furnace was was an angel of the Lord or as some think that it was a manifestation of Jesus himself. Honestly, it's not totally clear. But by King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction, it was definitely someone who emanated the glory of God and was able to keep them from being burned. And so either way, the point is that God was with them in some form or another and protected them in the fire. Jesus declares this very same promise to his disciples in John 16:33 when he says, "I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
He's telling them, he's telling them he's the source of their peace. Because in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And it's by this very same confidence in Jesus' peace and victory over sin and death that the Apostle Paul is able to proclaim in 2 Corinthians 4, 8-10. And he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So while we may, or rather will, face persecutions or trials because of our faith, as we suffer with Christ, we know that God has not abandoned us, abandoned us, but is with us in the midst of it to give it purpose, to, to give us peace, to comfort us, to strengthen us, to persevere through it, and even to rescue us if, as the three men conveyed as well, if it's his will to do so. And this is why Peter writes in 1 4, 13 to 14, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we don't have to fear or be ashamed of these fiery trials when they come upon us. Because when we share in Christ's suffering, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. He is with us, and nothing can separate us from him. In this sense, when when we're maligned or persecuted because of his name, we can rejoice and actually count it as a blessing. As strange as that might sound. Because God is glorified through it, and because we're actually being drawn closer to him as he draws closer to us. One last thing I want to point out at this time, though, is that while Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were kept safe and without physical harm, they got to walk out of the fire without being harmed. I don't think that this story is meant to imply that this will always be the case. I think, I think um, we'd be amiss if we interpreted it that way. And don't get me wrong, this is definitely a story about being rescued from the fire. But ultimately, as it always comes down to in Scripture... The story points us to something even deeper, something eternal. It's a story of escaping the judgment of death and being rescued into life. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, 25, he said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this literally played out in the story. As the guards who were obedient to King Nebuchadnezzar and, and that golden idol, were, they, were the actual, they were actually the ones who, who lost their lives in the fire. Right? But in contrast to that, it was the three Jewish exiles who had remained obedient to God at the cost of their lives who were the ones that were saved. The ones who gave their lives for God were saved and given life. I, I have a, a picture that I, I want to show you guys. Can you throw that up there, John? Did you get that one of this? Yeah. So that's um, a piece of a, of a fourth century Christian sarcophagus. That's where they put, you know, the bodies of, of the dead. Um, and that's a, yeah, from the fourth century. 
Uh, I think that it was from Rome or Greek, Greece or somewhere around there. Uh, anyways, um, that is a picture, as you can see, of the three men in the fiery furnace. And it's carved out onto that sarcophagus. Um, in other words, it's, it's implying that Christians saw this, this story as relating to, to death. And the implication being that, that it, it gave them hope in resurrection life. That as, as they went into the, the judgment of death, that they would be raised into resurrection life. So ultimately then, this story isn't meant to be a promise that will always be physically rescued from our persecutors. Many biblical figures and, and Christians throughout history can attest to that truth. That sometimes we will die for the faith. Rather, this story at its core is a reminder for us that we have nothing to fear. For even in the valley of the shadow of death itself, if we remain faithful, God is with us and will rescue us. That as we face trials on this earth, and in the end, even as we face the fiery trial and judgment of death for our sin, it's Jesus who always stands with us and for us, and ultimately saves us into resurrection life. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this glorious truth is available to us because it was Jesus, the Lamb of God, who faced the ultimate fiery furnace. At the cross, he willingly faced the fiery wrath of God, his separation from God, as he paid the wages of sin in our place with his death. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ultimately, this is a story of being brought from death to life. It's a story that that points us to the death and resurrection of Jesus and invites us to join him in it. It draws us as exiles in this world to turn from our idolatry and to place our hope and trust in him alone. To live for him alone, no matter the cost. To join him in his suffering until he comes again to rescue us from this exile. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10 The Apostle Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he says to them, he says about them, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That pretty much sums up everything we've been talking about this morning. And so in closing, then, my my prayer would be that we would emulate these these faithful people that Paul's talking about here. And that it would be our testimony as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are, Lord. I thank you for inviting us into your kingdom by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to make the way by his death and resurrection. And Lord, as we commit ourselves to you, 
as we humble ourselves before you, as we seek your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to, to, to realize and, and, and understand that, that part of that process is to join Christ in his suffering. And Lord, if that's what it takes, I pray that we would, we would welcome it and be ready for it. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us to stand firm in our faith, no matter the cost. That we wouldn't give in to the fear of man. That daily, as we, as we fight the battle between the spirit and the flesh, Lord, that we would choose the spirit, that we would surrender to you, that our allegiance would be to you alone, and that you would be glorified through it, and that your will would be done through our faithfulness, Lord. Lord, I thank you that ultimately you have set up a way to rescue us from this exile that you've set up a way to rescue us from the wrath to come. And so we can hope in that and trust in that as we live for you in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.